Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Tech Vets First LinkedIn Live. And this evening, we're joined by an absolute panel of experts. So, we're going to take a deep dive into the lucrative and exciting world of tech sales. So, we'll be talking about everything you need from what skills you need, what training you can access, if any, and how to identify what type of sales role you're after. If you've just joined us, please say hello in the chat. This live show will be recorded and shared on the TechVets digital platform for those who are unable to join us live. So I'm Colin Grimes, TechVets training coordinator, and tonight I'm absolutely delighted to welcome, and they'll introduce themselves as we go along, and we'll start with Alex Gay. Hey, good evening, everybody. Um, I left the line about three years ago, joined a cybersecurity startup called Sensor, also founded by a um, military veteran, Dave Atkinson, so sort of experience only from Sensor, but in sort of a startup environment selling cybersecurity software. Great. Thanks very much. And Josh Keeley. Hey, everyone. Uh, I left the Marines about six years ago. I'm the founder and director of Trident Search, a cybersecurity recruitment agency. And we focus working with vendors like Alex's, um, recruiting salespeople into uh, those organizations. Thanks, Josh. And next we'll come to John. Dear everyone, um, I work for a company called Braze, which is a customer engagement platform. So if you get emails, push notifications from the likes of Just Eat Train Line, uh, that's us. Left the army about seven years ago, um, joined Braze when it was a much smaller company. I've seen it growing over the last seven years, currently lead the EMEA sales team. Thanks very much, John. And finally, last but not least, Simon. Yeah, hi, everyone. I'm Simon Warren. I left the army about five years ago, and I'm currently a regional account manager at a company called Dragos. We do industrial cybersecurity. Thanks very much. Um, as always, if you've got any questions as we go along, feel free to drop them in the chat. Um, we've got Meredith working away in the, in the background. Um, she'll bring questions to our attention. Hopefully we'll answer most of it as we're going along. And if there's anything at the end, we'll, we'll open up to the floor if we can. I'm going to kick straight off. And I, I think I want to start with Alex with this one. Um, what are the different levels of tech sales that we can work in? So if we're looking for maybe there's a, a sort of the smaller business up to the sort of global tech behemoths. Yeah, I think you've described the sort of the range pretty well there, Colin. I've got experience working in essentially startups. So Centum was about 20 people when I joined over the last three years, grown up to about 100. So we've been in that space. We, at the time, were seed funded, which meant we had a certain amount of money to build a product to take it to market. And in that time frame, have gone from, um, got out and raised more money. So we're now in a Series A stage. So generally, I'd say from that number of 20 to about 100 people, maybe slightly more, is that sort of size. Um, it comes with pros and cons. Obviously, working in a smaller company, you probably have to do a slightly wider range of things. Um, but there are also potentially benefits, you know, from gaining things like um, stock in the company, potentially a better commission plan and things. But um, so I can talk this evening around sort of startup sort of um, sales jobs. Thank you. Fantastic. Um, Simon, same, same question. Yeah. So I, when I left the army, I went straight into Accenture. So that's obviously complete opposite end to, to what Alex did. That's a gigantic corporate. Um, I've then moved on through a very small company into a, a startup and then also into a scale up. So I've got experience across all different sizes. Um, in, in terms of like the, the different roles, if you want to go into a little bit of detail there, the, the big difference for me um, with the, the big corporates is you, you don't have as much of an impact um, because it's, you know, Accenture 600,000 people. So if I closed a big deal, 
no one no one really cared um, you know you had to you had to be doing sort of seven or eight figure deals for anyone to even notice whereas if you go somewhere a little bit smaller you, you, you know you're closing a big deal then it, it has a lot more impact on the company it might it might mean the difference between your next series of funding or even an ipo um so you feel like you have a lot more impact there and you also get you get recognized for that as well so if you close a big deal you go over your target you're going to get a lot more commission for that so that, it, that's i often talk to people about Considering that when you get out, you've got the sort of the stability and the benefits of a big company, but you don't get the same impact and recognition as if you go and have a, maybe take on a bit more risk in a smaller company, but the, the potential rewards are much greater. Thanks for that. And I mean, that's definitely something we talk about in the tech sector as well is, is actually sometimes it is that risk versus reward. You know, do you want to see something grow? And I, I, I think I particularly like your, your idea of, you know, you're having to make a mega sale in a big company to be, to be seen um so that's, that's probably something worth thinking about for people um john your your experience there yeah i, I guess i've got quite a singular experience um because i've only been with braid since leaving the army um but it was a very different company uh seven years ago about 100 employees and i was employee number nine in EMEA. um and, and i look back really fondly at that time um you know to um to alex and simon's point like the the, the feeling of ownership and impact um was was very real back then and you you knew everybody it was easier to get stuff done and also the experience of you know as the saying goes kind of building the plane as you fly it um that's uh, i found that really really energizing um and it's been um it, it, it's been a great experience watching things grow up to when we went public back at the end of um end of 2021 very different um space now um the i guess the the risk goes down um and uh, there's more resources but things are also a little bit slower so you know if you get a kick out of feeling that immediate um impact and having a greater sense of agency than than um smb sme is definitely not a um option to discount thanks and just somebody just i'm just going to clear up an acronym there but just so that i get it right i'm going to let somebody else jump in just to clarify what an ipo is yeah initial public offering so that's when a company becomes public and um, is traded on the stock market Awesome. So that's when you know as a company you've hit the big time, really, isn't it? And that's is that kind of where we're aiming to go. If you're, I mean, Josh, you're probably the the not. Uh, yeah, it depends on the owner's mission, I suppose, and the vision of the business. Because IPOs are well and good if you are a large organisation like CrowdStrike and have multiple service lines, and therefore you can you can typically tick all the boxes to go public. Um, but some organizations are aiming for the acquisition route. So I'd like to be acquired by CrowdStrike instead because I'm a very small module in the CrowdStrike beast. Um, and therefore we're a niche, super, super niche player. Um, and that's been very successful. And then there's other methods and avenues as well, um, like an MBO, so a management buyout. So you kind of get your own team internally to buy the business from you as the owner. Um, typically not the, uh, the richest route uh, for an owner, um, but it means it leaves it in good hands. So it entirely depends on um, the organization. It's really actually really important for when you are leaving the military and you want to go into a tech sales uh, role that you understand that mission and vision of the business to go, if I'm going to be working 12 hour days for you, because it is hard, um, I want to know what's the reward down the end, either for me, what we're aiming towards. So then when customers are asking us, like, what's the point of your business is you, you can kind of sell that story and that journey. Um, and then like, Alex has been on, John's been on, some obviously in different um, uh, size organizations, is that you can then um, kind of look back and go, wow, look how much change has been and look at us now, I'm more mature and, and we've got still all this kind of way to go. Um, so yeah, hopefully that kind of explains the different high level routes. And, 
and, that, and that's quite good and, and probably a, an interesting time to sort of jump into remuneration there. We had a, a conversation earlier on on our Discord that it's not necessarily about the, the headline figure, it's the package going along. And I think, Josh, you, you hit it really well there. If you if you understand where the company's going, that's probably going to give you a greater understanding of what could come to you down the line as well, whether it's you know shares in the company or or, or whatever. So the, there is more to life, I think, when leaving the military than just thinking about that bottom line. I described it as we've all got a red line that we need to be higher than. That's that's what's going to pay the bills and, and make life easy. But, the, yeah, there's sometimes more to it to look that up. Great. Thanks for it. Um, we'll jump into question two, which I, I think is, is, is probably one of the most interesting questions of the evening. And the term sales comes from, we've probably all got stereotypes in our head of what we think sales is and this high pressure, pushy, sharp elbows, getting people out of the way because I'm going to close that deal before anybody else is. But what's the reality? And, and Josh, can I go to you first on that one? Yeah. Um, so I don't work in tech sales, but I own a recruitment agency. We are salespeople, right? Um, firstly, uh, it's a stereotype, yeah. And sometimes it's true. Um, if you'd have worked in the 90s on the trade floor, I'm sure you'd have experienced the Wolf of Wall Street life that we've all seen. Um, that doesn't quite exist anymore, not, not that I've seen. But um, I think, uh, what's the life of a salesperson? It's It depends on what level you go in at, firstly, what organization you work for, small, large, etc. It can be uh, metric-based in terms of your KPIs. And KPIs is a dirty word. Um, depends who you ask, but the KPIs are there. So KPI is a key performance indicator, which is basically a metric of, have you done a good job today, this week, this month, et cetera. It might not be financially driven, right? Because as a new person to sales, you might not necessarily close a deal for the first three, six months, et cetera. So what else can we measure you against to see if you're doing well, and what you need training on. Um, but uh, they're there to help you. Um, and if they're fair KPIs, then, um, then uh, you should be hitting them um, weekly, monthly, daily, whatever. Um, but I think um, the the stereotype or the kind of the, the the aura of a salesperson has changed a lot. Companies are going now, and and the other guys can kind of back me up or, or uh, argue this point, which is from selling just licenses to the amount of users, and then it's ten pound a license per month, etc. To now like trying to sell a solution. So you can't just get any salesperson bum on a seat to sell a solution. Um, and we can go into kind of the key skills required because it's kind of I don't want to kind of go into that realm just yet, but um, to get a salesperson to sell a solution that can be quite complex and you might be asking that CISO, for example, to rip out um, quite a, a, a well-known product to come to yours because your solution is better, then you need to actually understand pain points and all sorts, which I'll, again, I'll let the guys go into more detail, but that takes more than somebody who everyone just assumes we are, no offense, uh, salespeople, estate agents or recruiters have even worse rep than a tech salesperson, right? But um, but yeah, so therefore it should also, if you come in from the military and you've got really good values and morals and you work hard, it can set you apart really quick um, because you should be very different and should kind of shine amongst what you'd call the, the kind of stereotypical salesperson. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks, Josh. Um, so same for you, John. So you're working in a in a different realm. What what would you say is your reality? Yeah, I just want to jump back to that point of remuneration quickly. So I think, I think it's really important. It's often something that people overlook. They're not from a sales world, but we often get fixated, understandably, on the salary. But there's so much more to a sales compensation package with regards to 
equity, which is really important to the previous point around understanding the the vision, the journey of the company and what that could mean materially in, in two, three, four years time. But also the, 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 the compensation, the commission element of the plan as well. Um, there, that's usually an area in which you've got more um, scope for negotiation. And it's really important to understand because that's actually where your earnings get, get really interesting. Um, sorry, sorry for going off piece, but I think it's, it's an important point. It's something that I was definitely um, kind of quite naive about when I, um, when I was initially looking at this space. Um, so in terms of the, the, the sales realities, yeah, I, I think the, the stereotypes are, are very real. It's something, it's certainly something I, I thought and felt when um, I was going through resettlement. The reality is that, you know, the, these tech solutions, you know, as, as Josh rightly put, are, are of a sufficient level of sophistication and complexity that, that those tactics don't kind of wash. You know, um, these, are, these are educated people, sophisticated buyers. There's usually always a lot of competition um, on the market and there are structured processes um, to go through as well as lots of different inputs from the influence ecosystem to make the right technology decision um, and, and basically at a high level companies buy technologies to do one of three things either improve revenue reduce costs or, or mitigate risk so your success in the ability to, um, to to sell your solution is to understand you know how you'll make an impact across those three pillars and then articulate your solution accordingly um, so there's not really room for for, for pushiness and, and the classic like dodgy sales tactics it, it, it's fair to say that it's a, it's a, it's a pressure environment just from the mere fact that you have a number on your back and there's many people who work in many companies who that just freaks them out. They don't want to do it. I mean, that's, that's one of the, the primary reasons why people from, from our background are, are a good fit because we've all been exposed to and dealt with high pressure situations. So when you, you know, take that experience and that resilience and apply it to the commercial world, it's only software. No one's going to get killed. And there's usually a higher tolerance for, um, for, for that classic sales pressure. I, I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it now because I, I, I suppose the this, this stereotype will come from things like the double glazing salesman coming around knocking on your door and that sell the one thing. And I think that, Josh, you really hit on that well, that, that now it, it's a service that you're selling and you want people to stay with that service. So you there's there's a bit more, I suppose, on you to to keep that relationship even in the, if you're not quite in the customer's buying cycle now because – in a year's time, you want them to come back with you and, and renew. Um, Simon, your your thoughts there? Yeah, so, I mean, as, as John said, there are stereotypes for a reason. I think some of the, the really big corporates might tend towards some of those more cutthroat environments just because they're, they're naturally just more competitive. But everywhere I've been, particularly the smaller places, everyone's kind of pulling in the same direction, especially as we talked about if you're pre-IPO, or you're on a, a startup or a scale-up journey, everyone tends to be working for the same mission. So there's none of this sort of, oh, it's my deal, that's your deal. Everyone sort of thinks, well, as long as someone closes the deal and someone brings in the revenue, we all grow. And that was, you know, we talked about the point in terms of like getting equity in a company and growing. So that really helps everyone pull in the same direction. Um, and I think just to sort of elaborate on what John said, uh, I don't think of what I do in, in, in the same sort of realm as you know, selling a commodity or selling a house or a car. We're effectively solving a problem. So we'll go into a client and they might not even know they've got a problem or they might say, um, like, like John said, we want to increase revenue or we want to reduce risk. And we might have several different solutions at our disposal to solve that problem with. But it's not just a case of you, you always have this one solution. You, you buy this, you buy this, you buy this. We're solving a problem and that's inherently what salespeople are. We're, we're problem solvers. 
Um, and it's just a matter of how well you solve that problem in terms of um, how much you sell. Um, and the, the final thing I would add is I just think it's, um, I always say it's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword working in sales because uh, you're, I think you're always working commission um, and that's a big thing that attracts people to sales and that, that means you're, you're directly compensated for how you perform. So you you know, you know perform better, you get paid more and it, it is, it's very direct. You close a big deal at the end of that month, you're going to get paid more. It's, it's very quick, very direct recognition for your performance. But I say it's a double-edged sword because at the same time, for, for, at least in my experience, it's quite hard to switch off because you think, oh, do I want to take two weeks off? Because I could, I could be like earning more commission in that two weeks. So it's, 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 a re- it's a real mental struggle to really, I don't know how the other guys have experienced this, but I find it really, really hard to switch off. So I just think, oh, two weeks off, I could probably close two deals in that time, which would put this much more money in my bank account. Um, so it, it is a real double-edged sword in that sense. But that that is... You know, I just think that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps me motivated. As long as you've got a really good um, internal motivation for, for why you want to make that commission, um, that, that's what sort of keeps you going, gets you out of bed every day. Thanks for that, Simon. And, and Alex, finally to you, and, uh, and I suppose your, your journey with your current company is at that beginning stage and, and seeing the company go to kind of where you want, where it wants to be in five, 10 years' time. So... Does that make a difference pressure-wise? I think what it does certainly, yeah, because there's almost like a, a pressure on the sales team that if we don't deliver sales, then the company doesn't exist in six, 12 months. You know, a company like ours has a finite runway of cash in the bank to to use to keep the paying the bills, et cetera. And so there's a reality that if the sales team don't deliver, then the company doesn't succeed. I think for me, the in terms of living that experience, the the objectivity of it, is, is very different to the pressure you get in the military. So I think we're very suited to high pressure environments, but to some degree to what Simon says, there's that number is on your head all the time. And so it's, and it's very clear. It's either yes or no, you got there or you didn't. Whereas in the military, I was very used to like the, you know, the slap on the back, you're doing all right, mate, keep going. Whereas in this world, it is very objective. You've got your, your you got your performance indicator or target or you didn't. And that that is a definite change in mindset. And that does take some time to get used to that. Um, and certainly an environment like Senton in this sort of ideally high growth stage, you know, that pressure is elevated because if you don't do it, there's not many other not many other people in the organization who can. But for me, that's the benefit, right? Back to one of the first comments about having an impact. My biggest concern from leaving the military is about having a sense of purpose that you no longer had and being part of a journey that I think most of us here have been on um, gave me that, that I don't think I'd have had if I'd gone and joined a big corporate initially or as, as Simon said, you know, the impact of your work isn't felt. And so that's kind of the balance for me. The pressure is kind of worth it because you see when you do succeed, you see the impact of it pretty quickly. Thanks. And I think that impact and and sense of mission and, and sense of worth is something we'll come back to in in one of the, the later questions. Um, so I just want to talk, and bearing in mind we've got a real breadth of experience on the panel, is what could a career in tech sales look like for somebody? So if I, I'll come to you first on that, Simon, because I think you've you've probably got the sort of longest journey with with multiple companies. Yeah, I, I think I'd start off by saying there's there's a huge array of, of roles you can do in sales, and some roles you wouldn't even necessarily think of as a sales, like an account manager. Strictly speaking, as a sales role, um, and you might not even have a, you know any outbound targets. You might just have a massive account, and you know we all know one guy works for a. a, a massive global corporation and he's an account manager and his only job is to retain that account and grow that account so i traditionally wouldn't have thought of that as a sales role but it's that's still sales so that's that's sort of one end of the spectrum in terms of it's very much um 
we'd call it a, a farming role. So you know, you're you're literally just looking after the your your one client. Um, not much outbound work at all. Definitely no cold calling or cold emailing. And then right at the other end of the spectrum, we've got something like a BDR and SDR, which is a business development rep or a sales development rep. That's almost like an entry level role um, where you you know you are on the phones often. You're doing lots of cold emailing, maybe connecting with people on LinkedIn. You're trying to open that initial conversation. Um, so two different ends of the spectrum, and then in between, you've got all different levels of progression, um, and you know things like um, account executives. We've we've all done that. Account account managers. Uh, then you get, go up to sort of VP of sales, director of sales. There's there's, there's all sorts of di- different career paths. It's not it's not like you sort of start at one role and then work your way up. Um, you know, it's it's very normal if you if you weren't coming from the military, it'd be very normal to go into a, a BDR and SDR role, which is sort of an entry level sales role, and then work your way up maybe to account executive and eventually maybe to VP of sales, director of sales. In, in all of our instances, though, we've kind of jumped in above that um, because a lot of people recognize the value of someone coming from the military. And so we don't, you don't necessarily need to go and do cold calling to prove that you can do sales. We trust that you can go in a little bit higher and, and then start from there. And then, But then even then with my, with my journey, um, I was basically an account executive, so an individual contributor. Then I was a head of sales. Then I went back to account executive, and now an account manager. So um, that there's no sort of one linear path through it all. It really depends on what you want to do, and that changes over time. You might join, you might leave the military and think, I just want to get on the phones and I want to like open loads of accounts and just be working, like, churning through the, the hard work like that. And then later on, think, actually, I just want to have one massive client I really take care of and build a really strong relationship with. And, and I think that's one of the best things about sales is. You're not stuck in a single path. You can zigzag through it all, and you don't even have to go up either. I've, I've got up a bit, then then sort of down, then across. Um, and again, coming back to the commission thing, if, if there's not really a massive incentive for me to become a, a VP of sales at the moment because I'm just focused on being an individual, an individual contributor, doing a good job at that, and you, you have the flexibility and you still get the rewards um, without the additional pressure of being any senior. But but you can always just move up at that point. So I guess the the sort of the conclusion is um, that you know you can kind of like choose choose your own adventure. There's no one linear path through, and I think that's one of the best things about sales. I, I, I genuinely think that's something that makes it sound really good and appealing to people. And I, I I think I especially like that idea of sort of multiple jump in jump out points um, to be able to suit your your life at the time. Um, Josh, could, I mean, again, you've said it, it it's not you. You're not selling tech. You're 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 putting people into those tech roles. I nearly said selling people there. That would have sounded all kinds of wrong. I'm not an animal, Colin. Um, <laughs> no, I, I've got just a couple of things to add. One is um, if you have a love for tech, you go into sales and you go, actually, I can talk the talk and I like I love talking about technology and getting deep into it, then you can go into what we call a pre-sales role, a sales engineering position. So you could be the person who helps the account exec who's probably on the second call but with a potential customer to answer the t- customer's technical questions and help them understand a solution and how it's going to solve something as opposed to a salesperson selling uh, licenses for a, for a fee, for example. So you can absolutely take that route as well and then go up through the ranks as well, sales engineering, uh, VP, et cetera, et cetera. Um, another thing to note also is if you look at people that own businesses and run companies and maybe work their way up to CEO or start businesses, but I don't know the percentage, but a lot of them are ex-salespeople. And the current salespeople, right? We're all salespeople in any walk of life that you do. Everything you're doing, you're trying to sell something at some point, no matter what role you're in. But more importantly, you look at like CEOs, Alex's boss, for example, he was a sales director at Darktrace. And there's, because businesses run on revenue without salespeople, they don't, they don't exist, right? So you've got that potential in the future to um, 
Firstly, you're building a massive network and community of people that you're talking to every day. So then if you ever want to set up your own business, you've got this huge network from behind that you've trod that path for five, six years, whatever, um, that you can then go back to and be future customers um, or work your way up into the business um, internally and, and be that CEO or chief revenue officer, for example. Um, but a few other points just to quickly note and kind of goes back to a previous point. Um, what path you take and what role you come in at when you leave will totally be dictated majority by your lifestyle, by your personality, by do you have kids and you can't be on the phone at 6 a.m. because you've got the kid wakes up then or can you can you do a U.S. market and you can work later or can you do a, an APAC market work earlier? So you need to work out firstly, what type of person am I? Am I a farmer or am I a true hunter? Um, do I want that pressure of um, new business all the time or do I want pressure of upselling and retaining customers? Um, and then do I want to work for a huge organization and be a bit more siloed in my particular role? Hey, you sit here, you do this one thing and you press this button and you retain that customer. Or do you want to work in a startup and go have to roll your sleeves up and, and kind of learn as you go and build the plane as it's in mid-flight? Um, because that just suits you better. I'm just a bit more kind of pingy everywhere and I'm, hey, I can do that. And then I've got that tab open and that might suit you better for a startup life. Um, but then on the flip side, if you're very structured and you need that daily kind of routine, maybe a startup's not quite suited for you um, or you'll learn the hard way because you can get pivoted everywhere and you've got fires that you're trying to put out and customers that were going to sign aren't now signing it's now next quarter and but um it, yeah so just a, a kind of few points to add there but you could be a technical salesperson um and also you can end up running businesses which a lot of salespeople do um because again revenue is what a company runs on right so yeah just a, a few points there i think that's a really good one and you know if we if we look at television for example and we look at dragon's den they're they're all salespeople at heart that's that's where they started and, and where they came came from and I, I want to pick up another point there that you made josh and simon we were discussing this before we went live this evening but this idea now that we're truly working in a global market and there is the ability that you know i could be sitting in in my my office here in rainy northumberland working hours to suit an American company because that's where my client is at the minute. But again, you know, equally pivot into the to the Asia Pacific market if that's where the work is. And is that the sort of thing do you do you find that that brings flexibility to the to the role in in different ways? I don't, I don't know, John, have you got any any thoughts on that one? Yeah, it, it, immense flexibility. Um so I've I've used to manage a team that had a global footprint and it's 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 hard work because you're working you know, <laughs> pretty unsociable hours often and um you know building on on alex's point earlier it's, it's it's difficult sometimes to to switch off as well when you combine the the spread of a team in different hours with you know everyone's trying to hit hit numbers and chase targets um it can become um a little bit overwhelming and i think also um the we're obviously all hybrid now these days and you can get so much done remotely, but there is still very much a, an important time and place for in-person connection. Um, and the value of those meetings, you know, across the sales cycle is, um, yeah, is, is, is very important. So I think it's, um, th there's a balance to be struck and just be, I'd, I'd be conscious of, of how, um, the, the, the team that you're looking at joining is currently operating, how the buyers like to, to, to transact uh, and work and, and make sure your setup can um, can map to that. I, I, yeah, that's, I suppose, really important now is, you know, if nothing else, making sure that we've got connectivity that's going to cope with with that, with with hybrid working. Um, I, Alex, so again, 
at, at the 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 startup end of the business um cycle how do you see your career going hopefully all right but um i think <laughs> There's there's a, there's a reality that this is it's somewhat aligned to the success of Senson again, which gives you that sense of purpose and drive. And I think um, for me, back to what Simon was saying, I've been in a account executive role, which means I at a startup have to find new business and also close business. So there's sort of two parts to my role. But in an organization organization like ours, I'm like there's probably a, a higher upside in terms of remuneration than there would be if I was a, in the level above in a management role. And so that gives you some potential freedom and and sort of more motivation potentially to stay in a role like this and so again this whole concept you've got to promote and go through the ranks doesn't necessarily translate across but um you know at a place like Senson or a startup that's going through a growth phase there is never to be going to be opportunities to move into leadership roles at some point the team will inevitably need to get bigger mm-hmm. i think if you can stick it out long enough in, in a fairly challenging environment this all the concept of you know covering the asian market and the us market in the startup basically means you work early and you finish late essentially so you cover all three but that's a little bit of um a reality of it so i think an earlier stage company there are opportunities to grow as the company grows but i suspect you're kind of relying on that company growth to open the door to some degree for you to, to move into those positions if they're already filmed and so um that's i think the the reality of a sort of a startup in the growth phase yeah just, just on that progression piece because I, I think it's a real advantage <clears throat> that um, military leavers have compared to other organizations you get exposed to leadership roles and opportunities a lot earlier in your career um, way earlier than most people on on, on City Street, uh, and my experience was, but when I was when I was leaving the force, I thought I've, I've got to go to management role. That's that's my thing. That's what I do. But I took a step back to a, an IC role, which felt a little bit uncomfortable at the time, but was in hindsight was absolutely the right thing to do because you need that space and that time at the coalface to to hone your craft, learn what you're doing, um, to then be ready if you do want to do leadership in the future. When that opportunity does come up, it's you're kind of a no brainer because you've got all that experience that you're. A lot of your peers won't have um, from from the forces, and that's I think that's really important as as well. And I, I quite like the honesty there, John, that, that actually you needed that step back to the I would say to, to the coal faces as the wrong way of putting it. But that understanding of what the, I suppose what the whole business is doing for you to then be able to go on and and manage in that business. And we we see lots of people leaving the military that, it, and it's almost the rank is still nailed nailed onto them. So they have to go into a job with that kind of responsibility. And I think some people realise almost too late that that's not really how the world works. The 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 business world will promote the, the good people into those management positions because they see what they can do. Um, the, there is sort of a true meritocracy out there, I think, in, in most companies that, that we deal with. Um, move on, we've, we've probably touched on a, on a lot of these, but I think that it's really worth nailing down um what you see as the key skills that pe- that people need to succeed in, in this world of of sales and if i can I'll, I'll start with you john on that one if i can yeah i think you, you need different skills for different um different parts of the uh, of the deal cycle the 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 evergreen one is is communication um uh, definitely um but also, um, so if, if you kind of map a sales cycle, it starts with, you know, the, the prospect in that, those evangelistic qualities to, to get attention and, 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 you know, get somebody's, uh, get somebody on the hook. And then, you know, from there, you're kind of a, an investigator. You're doing a load of discovery around the business, the, the pain points, the challenges, find, trying to find a, a, an angle to position your solution. Um, and then within that, it's kind of 
business consultancy skills. So, you know, mapping the improvements that your solution can provide to, you know, the, the business model and those kind of three factors I, I mentioned oh. earlier. And then once you've got that alignment on, like, hey, there's, a, there's, there's value here, we should do something about it. It's then probably a case of like pure project management. There's going to be a load of tech validation steps to go through. There's going to be a commercial work stream. There's going to be a legal work stream. There's going to be lots of different stakeholders um, that you're going to have to manage and map from your org to their org, which requires, you know, um, you know, high organization and project management skills. Um, and then probably at, at the pointy end, it's that, that negotiation and closing. So there's, there's, there's myriad skills, you, you know, you, you, most people will find what their, their strengths are and definitely what their weaknesses are early on. And, you know, it's, it's not that you have to be brilliant at everything because there's a team around you to, to support. Um, but yeah, the, one of the things I, that, that I've really enjoyed about being in sales is, is that you get to wear different hats, um, you know, throughout, the, throughout the day and across, um, uh, various deal cycles. Thanks. And, one of the things that we get from from people leaving the military and and sort of moving into the the the, the real world is the the sort of lack of corporate skills. Um, if I come to you, Simon, it, while while we're talking about key skills, did you find that a problem, or was it a fairly simple transition? I, I think I was I was lucky in a sense that I, I went to a big company at Accenture, um, so. That is one of the advantages of going to a big company. They'll give you a bit of slack. They'll give you time um, to get up to speed and to learn the ways of the corporate world. If you go to a small company like Senson, they, they kind of expect you to hit the ground running. They haven't got three to six months for you to learn how to be a civvy. Um, so that that suits someone who's, who's really ready to like, like hook in and, and get involved with everything from, from day one. Um, but I, I think the, the big thing I always, always talk about is all the transferable skills you get from the military. And a lot of them, when you're in the military, you kind of take them for granted. But when you take them out into a corporate world, it's incredibly evident from day one just how um, powerful those skills are compared to someone who might have done 10 years in a corporate environment. And I'm talking about things like John's already touched on some of them, but it's things like your communication skills, particularly the confidence speaking in front of people. You can't underestimate how difficult some people find it to stand up in front of a room of potential clients and talk confidently about your product. Um, and it's things like thinking on your feet as well, which links into that. So when that client comes back and says, I, I don't like what you're talking about because of A, B and C, do you just crumble under the pressure or do you have a good comeback? And anyone in the military has, has been grilled at some point during their training and they're used to thinking on their feet and either coming up with a good answer or bluffing it. Um, and the, the third sort of personality trait that I think is, is really important in sales is mental resilience. Obviously, anyone who's been in the military for any length of time has built up a degree of mental resilience it transfers so well to sales because you're, you're going to miss your target. Um, you're going to get rejected by clients. You're going to have terrible days where you've just got nothing back from any of your emails or calls. And a lot of people would just give up in that instance, but it's everyone I know in the military has got that sort of, um, they just don't stop basically. They'll keep going and going and going. They'll have a, a terrible year. I think, no, that's, that, I'm just going to keep going. I'll, I'll, I'll work out what I did wrong and I'll do something different next year. I'm not just going to quit. Um, and the fourth point is um, agility as well. You, you know, when you're in the military, you're changing roles all the time. You're getting posted to new places. You're getting promoted, doing different jobs. You're doing different stuff all the time. I think that's really important in a, in a sales role as well because um, we already touched on all the different roles you can be doing. Even within your role, you could be doing completely different stuff on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and finally, and then John um, sort of already touched on it already, but those problem-solving skills, those, he, he called them business consultancy skills, but I think at the core, it's just problem-solving skills. 
and again, day to day in the military, you might not realize it, but you're, you're solving problems all day, every day. And they're often, we've touched on it earlier, they're often much more important problems. They're a sort of life or death problem. So if you can solve a life or death problem under like a huge amount of pressure, you can solve a problem for a client that wants to increase their revenue or reduce their risk. So they're, they're the, the five things that I think transfer really, really well um, from the military into the corporate world that actually make that transition much, much easier than I expected it to be. And it's, it's I found it very easy. And I, I can I can say the same for almost everyone I know who, transfer, who transitioned into the corporate world. Um, I found it very easy to, to excel very early on just by doing simple things like having the confidence to stand up in a meeting and talk about your product when other people would be hesitant to do so. I think that that's spot on. If um, if James is watching this and is in the chat on LinkedIn, he'll probably um, throw in a link to the McKinsey report, um, which, which covered a lot of those things and and those ideas of of where the the skill sets lay. We we do really, I think, misrepresent ourselves at, at times in the military. I had a, an EOD tech. The other week talking to me worried about how he was going to cope with the high pressure world of corporate when he left the military and i was like if you can't deal with pressure then, then nobody can. um but i think it's that it's what becomes your norm isn't it if that's your everyday life to to then think of life beyond that as something different it, it is a, a big step um alex can i can i come to you on this next because i think i want to come to josh last on this one from this sort of recruitment point of view, what you're looking for sure. in somebody. Sure. You know, I think that most of the points have been like really well covered, I think, by John and Simon. What we look for when I've been involved in the recruitment of people here is is all those things, but we break it down and it might be useful for them. Josh has probably got views on this as well about how we then assess people who are going through our sort of recruitment process, which is using the ICE criteria. So intelligence, character, coachability and experience. Actually, when I went through this, my experience of selling cybersecurity software was zero. Um, but you bring other experience that is really valuable from all those points that have been made about our military experience. But I think coachability in this world, when you're leaving the military, is, is super important because you know you're picking up a new skill, probably in, in a new profession, certainly, possibly like for many of us, selling something that we had no experience of. Um, but the reality is in the military life, you change the job so frequently that you have to be coachable, you have to learn quickly. So I think we tick those boxes very well. In terms of character, this is, I think we've talked about it, but like things like resilience and user initiative are the two things. Certainly in a startup world, the ability just to get on with it. As Simon said, we don't make our targets frequently. You're not going to necessarily have those big deals early on in, the, in a career like Senson. But when they do start coming in, then then it's really worth it. And so that resilience, I think, is for me the, the, the standout characteristic that has, has led us, the people who have done well at Sense on in there. And finally, intelligence, because of all the things that, the complexity that John talked through the process and and some of the challenges that Simon described, you know, having a, you don't have to have a high EQ, but I think, uh, sorry, IQ, but sort of good EQ is really important in this. And we look for a bit of both when we're looking for people. You know, are they intelligent enough to deal with the complexity of a complex, several hundred thousand pound deal um, dealing with, sort of board level conversations and so for me they're the four sort of buckets that you can start to put these characteristics in that are probably quite helpful if you're preparing for an interview or looking at these of sort of making sure you've got examples of those sorts of things ready to go shall i roll into it colin yeah um i had ice written down in front of me alex cheers mate um uh, so i've got nothing to say um so uh the number one thing i take out of what everyone's just said is most of us that leave the military in some form, a way, shape, or form, have all of those skills. So, um, so if you're now competing against each other going for a sales job, um, how do you stand out? 
And it comes down to two things, uh, in my opinion, and also what our clients are looking for all the time. Intelligence, absolutely intelligence. So um, how do you demonstrate that to a, in an interview? It's, I understand the cybersecurity market. This is what I've researched. These are threat actors I'm aware of. This is who they're attacking. These are sectors and man like manufacturers get smashed by the nation states in, in the Far East because of X. Um, so therefore, interviewing for your role, your company, I know your product. Could, that, could we go and target the German manufacturing sector? Do you do any of that? And asking those types of questions, they're like, this person's thinking the right way and they're trying to connect the dots because they're doing their research into the industry and they're trying to fit where our product we're trying to see where our product fits into that um, environment. Now, it's very easy to do that once you've been in the industry for a while, um, but doing some very high-level research at least gives the interviewer an idea of, okay, this person's intelligent enough to try it. Imagine now when they're in our environment, surrounded by our people, talking the same language all the time. Um, give them a few weeks, a few months, they'll be up and running really quick. Um, so that's one thing, intelligence. Uh, and I'll come on to another reason as to why in, in a second. And then the second thing is, um, I'm going to call it networking, but everyone that word is so overused it's the sociability if that's even a word of us military people we are pack animals we like being around each other we like going to a pub for a, for a beer we like doing sports together we like going to the gym together so um you firstly have to um get used to the fact you're going to be sat behind a desk most of your day but then secondly it's how do you get away from your desk and go out and meet prospects and go to networking events and put yourself out there and i see alex all the time at, on, on the sense on stand at infosec and all the all the expos and it's you're just talking to people and engaging and because you just want to learn from new people and just say, hey, who are you? Like, what do you do? Like, do you know about our product, et cetera? So the kind of the social aspect of veterans and serving military personnel is, is super, super important here. I know it sounds obvious and everyone always talks about networking, but when someone comes to me and goes, hey, I'm uh, currently serving, I'm out in September, I want to roll in tech sales. Firstly, obviously, they I know they come with those prerequisite skill sets that we've already spoken about, but it's... If they come to me and said, hey, I know I want to be an account exec in some sort of cybersecurity company. Um, I'm connecting with people that potentially might buy from me in six months time now. I'm talking to, I'm trying to connect to CISOs. I'm trying to connect to heads of security operations. I'm connecting those people um, uh, with those people and just making myself known. And if they can then demonstrate that into an interview, we already know you're a networker. We know you're building that, it, it, like, that kind of community on your LinkedIn as an example. Um, and you're already thinking that way. So the kind of networking piece is really important. Combine that with intelligence and understanding of the market, the product, et cetera, will take you a long way because we already we all have these other underlying soft skills. Um, and, then, uh, and then the last piece was just about how when I hire salespeople into my team, I probably hired 10 military in, in the last four years, um, all walks of life. And the reason why, if anybody's not with us now, um, is the reason why they struggle is getting used to being behind a desk all day. And that kind of like, under, like being in that kind of, we're not corporate at all, right? Wear t-shirts and shorts and flip-flops, but understanding that you're not going to be in the wild, walking through the woods, breathing in the fresh air all the time. Having a hybrid work in life is, is, is great and that can enable you to do that. But if you're in the office twice a week, get used to being sat behind a desk um, because that is, um, I don't know the percentage, but it's a higher percentage of your job. To caveat that, I can tomorrow go for a walk with and take my dog for a walk down the canal and I can take four phone numbers with me and, and call people. So there is that kind of balance, but just get used to the fact that you will be behind a desk, behind a TV, a, a, a laptop at least. Um, and uh, you're going to be plugging away for quite a while, especially to start your career, building that network. Um, so yeah, uh, intelligence and networking is, is, I think it's just kind of layer on to those soft skills that hopefully a lot of people have when they do. Great, sorry, I couldn't find my own mute button there. Um, 
what I found really interesting there is on a webinar where we're talking about tech sales is nobody's talked about tech skills. And I suppose what that says to me is you don't need to be the most techie person in the world as long as you've got, as, you, as you've all said, kind of an understanding of your product, how it's going to fit into somebody's problem solving. Because that's then what your tech team are going to do and that they will do the tech part while you're doing the talking to people. So that that's that's really, really in interesting. And it sort of resonates with 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 me. I, I'm not, although I, I work for tech vets, I, I'm not the techiest person in the world. Um, and I think probably some people watching are thinking, I, I really need some tech skills to get in, but but we're not talking deep level. Um, so the, I suppose the, the $64 million question is why, why then are, are our veteran and military community, why, why are they suited to those careers in, in tech sales? And I know, Simon, you had a burning desire to come in first on this. I think I kind of covered it on my, on my last answer, to be honest. I think, you know, I went through the, the, the five main characteristics, I think, transfer really well. And, and I think that, that, you know, just sort of just reiterate that that's why you know, veterans are so well suited, because we've got all those character traits that allow us to excel. And every, everyone I know um, who's transitioned from military, either into something else, then into tech sales, or directly into tech sales, has excelled. Uh, good example, a, a guy I worked with last year, he went into tech sales as his first job straight out of the army, no experience whatsoever. Um, and last year, he was the highest performing salesperson globally in the company I was working for. No experience whatsoever. Um, so I think that that tells you, um, A, you, you don't need tech skills, that's for sure. Um, he was a, a rifleman. Um, so, and, and you, you don't necessarily need any sales experience either to the points that I talked about and then Alex and Josh talked about the ICE um, characteristics. So I think that that's why it's 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 so good for to, for veterans because there are very low barriers to entry, and if if you're good, you get compensated for it. Um, you get compensated and you get recognised. So, um, it's it's the only it's for me it's it's the best balance I've found between um your work life balance. What Josh was talking about, go for a walk during the day if you want, do whatever you want. So balance between your work life balance and your compensation. Yes, you could probably earn a lot more money going to work for Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan in the city, but you're going to work 15 hours a day. Um, or you could work hardly any hours doing something else and not make as much money. I think sales is a, a fantastic balance between you know actually having some time and some flexibility and getting paid re reasonably well. And it's really making the most of a lot of skills you've, you've um, gathered in the army or the military. Thanks. And Josh, I, I guess we've kind of touched a lot of this about why people are suitable, but you're you're putting people in into these roles so how almost how easy do you find it to put veterans into those positions um firstly the challenge with that just and then i'll come on to why it's easy uh, uh um the challenge is um saying to a, a color stripey hey i know you've led a troop of blokes before and you you've done all the logistics for a deployment but right now you're going to have to be an account exec, an individual contributor to what John said earlier, get on the coalface um, and actually uh, in the trenches and learn the job. Otherwise, how are you going to lead a team of account execs if they go, well, you've never sold anything in your life. Like you don't understand the methodologies and how to, et cetera, right? So that's the first thing is kind of having those frank conversations with the salaries at account exec level are pretty good. But BDRs these days are making 35, 40K, right? Which is the, which is, um, the kind of entry level role, uh, so to speak. So that's kind of like a sergeant. I don't know what salaries are in the military anymore, but that's like the sergeant level, I assume. Um, so you've got your kind of red line sorted. Everything over that is just commission, right? Um, so 
that challenge straight away is uh, the reality of you're not going to lead a, um, a, a troop of salespeople anymore. Um, let's get real right now. Serve your time, be recognized internally, and then you will get spotted and dragged into those kind of leadership roles if that's what you want. Um, but the, the majority of employers that want veterans into their um, kind of sales teams are either run by veterans and they know exactly what they're going to get. And that's very common, John being one of them, um, or... Um, they know they're going to get a reliable, like a safe pair of hands who's just going to come in and walk graph their ass off um, because we haven't seen that type of money before. Also, especially in the Marines, where it's quite slow promotion pathways, we have never been recognized or rewarded directly for all of the hard work we do. So back to the point previously, I think Simon made it, which is the harder you work, the more money you make. I know it's cliche and it's very salesy to say that, but it's true. Otherwise, why are people in sales? Uh, why would you go choose a tough job where you have a number of your head if you're not going to get directly rewarded for it so um yeah that's that's yeah so that's the challenge um recognizing that you're not going to be able to be a leader straight away potentially depending on who you join um but uh, the harder you work the more you make uh merit is certainly a meritocracy um and uh and we didn't always get that in the military um so that i think that's quite appealing for people but employers love us because we're, we're where they know it's going to hit the ground running and work hard um and they're going to get um, some results from us and success because we've never seen it before uh, in terms of those figures of money, etc. So, um, yeah, hopefully that makes sense. Uh, and and Alex, your your take on that then? Why why veterans? I think for everything we already said. The one thing that we haven't touched on, I think, is there, and it goes definitely back to what Josh is saying there about the humility. I remember, like on on week three, I was still in theory serving and like having um, sort of like three weeks earlier been doing some quite significant like briefings in the MOD to being told to fuck off by someone on a cold call. Like it pretty, pretty much puts <laughs> you in place. It, it puts you in place pretty quickly, but you know, I feel like the military prepares you for that in a strange way. And you know, the scenario I was in is like, well, I've got to go and pick up the phone in 30 seconds and make that call to someone else. And, and this goes back to all those traits we just talked about, you know, having the sort of resilience to get over that and then intelligence to work out a better way to communicate with someone next time. So that isn't the response you get. Um, I just think, you know, the well, the rounded nature of someone who's left the military, even after a short period of time, um, just puts them in a good stead for something which is incredibly varied and often very complex. And thanks for that. I think that's a, a tremendous analogy there. And it's almost like the, the boxer idea, isn't it? It's, you're going to get repeatedly punched in the face at, at yeah. some way. We've got to work out how to dodge that punch and, and get our own in. Um, and there's one other, one other point, sorry, Colin, just to, to finish on, is there is also no barrier to entry. So you do not need a professional qualification. There are not courses that you have to do. There are not things that you know are barriers to someone leaving the military after three or 30 years that prevent you from joining uh, our organization. We've just had a guy join our sales team as a business development rep. He's not military, but he's spent his entire career to date in the TV industry as a producer and now has decided at the age of like 40, essentially to move into sales. And so it's a career that you can jump into later on in your in your sort of overall career without having to go and commit a lot of time into education or re-education or, or whatever that might be. So there are very few barriers to this other than the things you have intrinsically within yourself. So I think that's another reason why it can be a great option. Thanks for that. And same question to you, John. Well, my, my turn to go last year. This is hard because these are all like really relevant, great points. And I, I, actually, I was actually going to pull the uh, lay out the, the humility one, but, but Alex got to be first on, on that one as well. So, no, I, I think, yeah, the, the point Alex makes on, on both coachability and humility are, are, are super relevant. So, you know, the success in pretty much anything, you know, in life really is based on knowledge, skills and attitude. You know, the attitude piece 
for the military community is is kind of a given you know high levels of motivation and understanding for the importance of values and standards um and that that resilience we spoke about earlier but it's the it's the knowledge and skills piece which is, is probably going to be the, the the gap so that that coachability your uh, appetite and capacity to learn um is is super relevant and not just for the the transition but it, it's evergreen because you know the, the the tech world moves so quickly you know market trends capabilities it's changing quarter on quarter year on year so what, what we knew last year just isn't relevant anymore we're constantly having to be to be learning um and and that coachability that definitely speaks to, to intellect as well and yeah on 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 humility i think it's spot on um you know that, that that icy role that that I found myself in, um, whilst it was a bit unnerving, it was it was kind of a double edged sword because I, I knew I was going to be the dumbest person in the room for six months, and I, I tried to lean into that and use it as my superpower, just asking all of the bone questions. And I was blown away the amount of times when someone said to me, "Oh yeah, I was thinking that as well." Um, so you can really learn a lot when you kind of resign yourself to the fact that like I know nothing here, um, and I'm just going to be a sponge, and it'll probably accelerate your your path as well. Uh, and also the, the flip side of the ICPs for, you know, anybody who's um, kind of forged their career in leadership, it's actually quite liberating. Um, and I, I found it quite exhilarating to only have to worry about your own performance. Um, and you'd probably be surprised at what you can achieve when you're just focused on that rather than, you know, chasing around a, a section or a platoon. Thanks. Um, we've got a couple more questions before we, we wind it up for the evening. Um, the next one, uh, Alex, you kind of jumped into this. Um, at Tech Vets, we see lots of people coming in knowing what training or asking what training to do, what courses they need to do to get ro to get roles in tech or cyber or or wherever. We know there's lots and lots of sharks in the water around the military community because we know or they know that people tend to have access to this pot of money that isn't really theirs um, to pay for training. So if you were going to recommend any training for somebody to do, um, what would it be? And Alex, I will go to you on this first because I know you've got a really strong view on this one. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know if there are any like really there are training courses you can do that you can pay for um for what we call sort of qualification. I think as in most things are frameworks that organizations will use to 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 build their sales process, but they are very unique to that organization. And there are some things that often will translate across most of them. And this is about how you qualify your opportunities because your time, as we mentioned earlier, is is your salary essentially. So you want to make sure you're spending your time in the right place. And so you can go and do things that teach one of those frameworks. Medic is one of the very popular ones. But the reality, I think you'd be better spending your time um, not doing something like that. And as Josh said, speaking to people who are doing these roles, certainly if there's an organization or a sector you're interested in specifically, go and find ex-military people in that role and other salespeople in that role and in those organizations and speak to them, understand how their organization um, qualifies people for their in their HR process. We talked about the ICE um, criteria previously and understand the processes they use for qualification for, for their sales. And then you can arm yourself with relevant skills, I think, for that interview. Now, it's maybe quite a, a long process that but as josh said like networking around this um industry seems to be for me the most effective way to use your time number one to find a job and number two to make sure when you're in the job you can be effective because cold calling and cold outreach has has a limit in terms of value but your network that you've built i think is is how you can be really successful as a salesperson and that ex-military community for me personally has been hugely hugely valuable in enabling me to get out there and speak to people who without that connection I wouldn't have. And so I, I would rather spend my time if I was in transition now, um, 
uh, networking into the right sort of organizations, the right sectors that I want to be working within, rather than necessarily going do a course and maybe spend your learning credits on something fun instead. Um, thanks. I'm going to jump into Sean's question there. So Sean's saying, how is the global slowdown in tech hiring affecting the availability of, of tech sales roles? So he's in his experience of mainly the large enterprises, and, and you know, we know the, the Googles and the Amazons and the Microsoft of the world's, either laying people off or on that that hiring freeze or slowdown um do we have any thoughts on on how that's going to get better um over the next six to nine months so you know if somebody's thinking of, of pushing the buttons to freedom now are, are things going to get better josh you're you're probably quite well placed to also to everybody the themselves because everyone wants to talk about it <laughs> um so uh yeah i put a post on linkedin today actually quite timely about um i speak to investors a lot uh, because they take us with them when they invest in the company because then they want to grow the business, right? And, and see return on revenue um, or investment. Q1 and Q2 was tough, right? Everyone make no bones about it. Unless you're a super, super niche, if you're just trying to ask a, a customer to rip out the same products as you've got, but you've got a slightly different take on it or a different marketing spiel, then good luck, right? Renewals were through the roof uh, in, in the first half of the year because it's just easier um, because your product's not that much better or different. So I'll just renew, right, as a customer. Um but talking to the investors uh, and to give everyone a bit of hope, uh, Q3, Q4 is already um, looking on the up. We're busier than ever with requirements. Um, so, and we're seeing the idea for H1, or sorry, the first half of the year was investors were going, we're going to hold off for a second uh, and we're going to see who can actually survive when times are really tough. Who can actually make the most of their runway, which is about the amount of cash they've got in the bank until they need investment again. Um, and then we'll invest in them once because they've got the reputation. They've obviously got a very good product. Um, so we saw less announcements of uh, rounds of funding and et cetera um, in the first half of the year. But now we're getting told, and I'm speaking to partners at VCs and stuff like 1011 and, and other um, cyber-focused, uh, obviously a bit biased here, um, saying that, hey, yeah, we're going to now release the, the checkbooks and we're going to release the hounds and we're going to start funding. You're going to see way more companies. I spoke to two today who have just signed uh, for the next round of funding companies, but then announced it in, in just after the summer. So... Um, we're seeing a big upturn uh, in the second half of the year, kind of weathered that storm, so to speak. Um, don't get caught up too much in the news around the big tech firms. Of course, they're going to be ones that do the big PR releases and, and reporters are going to um, say, hey, Amazon fired 12,000 of their staff this month. You're like, yeah, but during COVID, they hired nearly three quarters of a million. So actually, it's like less than 1% of people to make redundancies, right? Um, so um, you have to look at it kind of relative. Um, there aren't many of our clients, again, I'm biased. We're looking at kind of the Sensons of the world, the Series A, Series B, under kind of 250 kind of head count that are making too many redundancies um, because they are running lean, they're running sustainable. Um, and uh, investors in these companies knew this time was coming. Uh, we were just waiting post-COVID or when it was going to hit, and it's 2023, right, because it's all doubled up with the, the conflict, et cetera. Um, so things are definitely looking up. Um, it did slow down in Q1, Q2. Most of the journalists were reporting on the big tech firms because everyone knows those names. If they start reporting on the small cyber vendor that made four redundancies last month, no one's going to give a shit, right? So um, it doesn't make a big, uh, there's no clickbait for them. So, um, and if you're targeting the big tech firms, uh, I can't really talk too much in terms of their hiring plans and patterns. Um, I don't know. But um, in terms of um, the, the startup scale up hyper growth companies, it's kind of business as usual in Q3, Q4. Um, I don't know, Sim, you may have a different opinion with Dragos being kind of size it is. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, you know, I know lots of people are losing their jobs at the big companies. Personally, I just think they were bloated. They're, so they're just right-sizing for the amount of revenue they create. Yeah. Um, Accenture is a good example. They were up to, I think, 700,000 people, which is unbelievably hired. So about 200,000 people in two years, which is just ridiculous. Just way, way too many people for the amount of revenue they're creating. So they have to right-size when the, the economy starts slowing down. Um, we're still hiring. We're, we sort of downsized a bit in the US, but expanded massively in Europe, and we continue to hire across Europe. So I think my point is, you find those organizations that are still hiring. They are out there. Um, I don't know if we can share the link, Colin. There's a, there's a website called stillhiring.today. Um, there it is. Um, so that, that's a list of um, all the companies that are actively hiring in the world right now. It's, it's created by a guy from LinkedIn called uh, Corporate Bro, worth following if you don't follow him already. Um, but that is a really, really useful resource there. And that's that's telling you um, who's hiring right now. You can you can arrange it by by country, look at who's hiring in the UK. And there, there are companies that are hiring out there. They're just the ones that, um, as Josh said, are the ones that are still on those those growth journeys. And they do exist. Um, you know, if I if I think about Dragos, what what we provide, like the, the economy slowing down doesn't change the fact that people need to protect protect their critical infrastructure. So we're still growing, we're landing new clients every single day because it's essential to them. Um you, know, you look at the likes of you know, Twitter and Facebook. Like how essential is Twitter and Facebook to people? It's they like it, but it's not essential. So if people have a choice, they're going to stop paying advertising revenue on Facebook and Twitter, and then they get the slowdown. We haven't seen that slowdown in in revenue to the same degree, and hence we, we're still hiring. Just using that as an example, but there are lots of other companies out there just just like us who are still hiring, um, and hopefully that website will help help everyone out there find them. And I, th I think that's really important to to remember. I, I suppose we become more reliant on tech, and especially into the realms of, of the critical national infrastructure stuff. That's only ever going to be a, a growth market. The, there isn't going to be as much of a slowdown there. There may be less money being spent right now, but that those things still need protected. They still need systems that look after them. They're still going to need people. Um. That's really all we've got time for this evening. We've, we've got a little bit over time there. Um, so if we haven't answered your question or if you want to follow up, head to the TechVets website um, or the TechVets Discord if you're in there or drop us an email um, via our website, techvets.co. Um, you can register with us there. You can get free impartial advice about all things tech and cyber, what courses to take, future career options, and we can put you in touch with people like the people on our panel tonight who will help you take that step out of the military or that step to new employment. Thanks very much to our, our panel of experts tonight, Josh, Simon, um, Alex and John for your time and effort this evening and bringing your experiences and insights to the TechVex community. Um, the recording will be available at some time in the future. The link will be will go out on our LinkedIn um, when it's ready and on the TechVex website. All that's left me to say is thank you very much for joining us this evening and what has been a very, very informative evening. I'm about to go and register with Josh um, for, for my new career. Don't waste your time. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I'm old and past it and ex-Air Force. And you, you guys are all the young, trusting things. But thanks very much for your time and we'll see you all on the next one. Cheers, Colin. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers.